любит, любил сам красотку Тамару. Ты душа любезный, совсем не под пару. Ты цветочка кроза родного Кавказа. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host Rusana Novik. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between five dollars to twenty-five dollars. If you like this podcast, please support it by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com/euronot. That's E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. Or to yourknot.org and find the Patreon button up there in the right-hand corner of the website and become a monthly patron. So this week, uh, listeners, we have something very special: a narrative story that Rusana produced called "I Knew Fever," and uh, this is your first narrative audio. And I wanted to do a, like a little short interview about it. And the first question I have is: is the title? What, why did you call it "I Knew Fever"? Okay, well, there are two answers. First, I was inspired by a Soviet movie from the mid-20s. It was called um, Chess Fever. So that's where I got the idea for the form. Now the meme. It's a story about two amazing people I met on Sakhalin during my field research, Roma and Irina. And it's a story of their friendship and of them discovering and reconnecting with the Ainu tradition an indigenous community on Sahalin. And it treats topics like, it also treats topics like romanticism and exoticism that are often projected on indigenous communities. So that's where, that's, that, that's why, that's why I know fever. I guess I wanted to convey the idea that our obsessions with certain things, certain cultures can be blinding and misleading and um, in this case, I'm referring to Roma's fascination with the Aino culture, but also his uh, fantasies about it that are not real. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, that's one of the things I really like. You have these really interesting pe- two people that you met, and you did this really lovely story about their relationship, but also some of the kind of problematic things that come with that relationship, but also how those problematic things also open up spaces for people to, you know, do their thing. Exactly. Well, I guess in that sense, I guess the title doesn't fully disclose the, the episode's contents, kind of leaves the, leaves the intrigue. Well, you don't want to have one of those long academic ones with like, you know, I knew fever, colon, blah, 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 blah. Like, we don't want to do that here. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because because this is the first time you've done a like extended narrative audio story, uh, I, I was just kind of curious, like, what was your experience like? I mean, you know, because I had, I went through that myself. So I'm kind of curious what your kind of things you took away from that experience. Well, of course, it was very exciting because I... I got a chance to produce everything from start to finish. Well, first to adapt my field materials for a wider audience and then develop my own story, like write a script, uh, think of what materials exactly I'm going to use, what my integration is going to be like, and then finally put it all together in an audio editing software. And so that part specifically was challenging because I don't have much experience working with audio. So I had to kind of learn from scratch. It took me a really long time. I think 
I think I probably put more than 100 hours into this piece. But I also learned a lot. I mean, I got a ton of new skills and um, I look forward to producing another story at some point in the future. Because all of your kind of your work, creative, like intellectual work has been writing for the most part. I know you've done some film stuff, but mostly writing. Did you, what did you think of the idea? Because a lot of listeners will hear this, but it has, there's a lot of layering in this piece. And I was, I'm always curious how like, you know, academic types like us, you know, since we're dealing with a different medium rather than just text, you know, what I, one of the things I like about audio is that you can do this layering. And I was kind of curious what how you felt about the, the ability to use different sounds. I loved it because, and that's probably why I ventured into film at some point as well, because it's a different language that is, um, I don't want to say it's more rich because writing can also be very um, motivating and riveting and, and I don't know. It's a different way of putting together a story. Like you have different tools at your disposal. Like writing is very consequential. You write a sentence, it's like one word follows after another. While in audio and as well as film, you kind of can be more simultaneous. Like you can create certain moods and effects at the same time as you're telling a story or at the same time as you're playing a clip. Um, so in that sense, it was interesting to experiment well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're into it. I mean, I, I I would love for more, uh, you know, academic type people to consider the medium because of that allowing for that layering and that thickness to provide, all, you know, like you said, emotion, but also, you know, a kind of the the environment, which I think you did really, really well in in this piece. So, so it, you know, as people listen to this piece of yours, this story, uh, what do you want them to keep in mind? So one thing I kept coming back to as I was working on this piece is that I want our listeners to take it as hopeful, not as apologetic for you know romanticism or ignorance or exoticism of indigenous people, but as hopeful that beyond that romanticism or maybe out of that romanticism, bigger and better things can grow. There was one more thing I wanted to say. I'm, th I'm so thankful for your guidance and for your support and feedback. This episode would never see the light of day <laughs> if you, Sean, did not push me and if you didn't help me to put it to a close, finish it up. Because at some point, I just got so frustrated, like I thought that I would never finish it and that it was not worth working on it. And I think it was your um, insistence and maybe your belief that helped me, that helped me finally get here where I'm today. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad. I'm glad I was helpful because, yes. you know, that means that you'll, you'll do more. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I'm not just saying it for the, you know, for the tape. No, no, no. I really I, mean it mm -hmm. because, you know, I really needed that guidance. I have so many unfinished <laughs> projects in my life, so I'm so fucking happy that this has actually happened, that I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I sympathize, believe me. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, um, I hope listeners enjoy it, and um, let's listen to I Knew Fever. Все, у меня пошло, у меня с тех пор. This is Roma and Arena. I met them on Sahalin in the fall of 2021. Roma is the founder of a public nature park called Silent Cape, or Mustihi. Irina is Ainu, who ancestors lived on the land that now belongs to the park. Roma, I came here, Roma. I started to pray to him, to help him. Help me get to him. And then the guys on the car. Roma and Irina met through a friend and instantly became close. A shared passion for Ainu history and culture brought them together. I was there when Roma and Irina met in person for the first time. Roma was hanging out with park volunteers when Irina arrived. Exuberant and striking, she drew everyone's attention the second she walked in. She ran up to Roma with a big smile and gave him a strong hug. It's so great to finally meet you, Roma Nispokai. Then she stepped away, looked at him and exclaimed, Roma, your face. You look like Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree, guys? As she said it, I thought to myself that he indeed looked like Jesus. Curly hair, light blue eyes, and a beard touched by gray. But it wasn't really his appearance that Irina referred to. I knew exactly what she meant. It was the look in his eyes. It radiated joy, kindness, I'd even say saintliness. My name is Rusana Novikova, and this is the Ainu Fever. A story of romanticism, self-discovery, and one complicated friendship. But let's leave Roma and Arena for now. We'll come back to them later. First, I want to tell you a bit about what I was doing there in the first place. I flew to Sahalin at Roma's invitation. My dissertation focuses on a program called the Far Eastern Hector. The thing is, to this day, individuals can't buy government-owned land. But the Far Eastern Hector entitles any Russian citizen to a free hectare of land anywhere in Russia's Far East. A hectare is about the size of a soccer field. The program is dramatically transforming land ownership in Russia. And Roma is a prime example. He got a tract of land for his park through this program. The park is about two hours north of the island's capital, Yuzhna Sakhalinsk, and the place is gorgeous. Infinite sand beaches, large woods, a seal rookery, and absolutely stunning views of the Zhdanko mountain range. So naturally, I was excited to become a volunteer for the project. <laughs> When I got to Sakhalin, I was curious to know why Roma chose the forest in Hector. Why go this route? Wouldn't it be easier to work with the regional government and create a state park? It's 
almost impossible to push a regional government to create new protected area or expand existed one. I know some environmental organizations who were pushing years and years, decades, to create one or make it bigger. You will spend lots of resources, money and time to do it, <laughs> but you will not succeed. Despite its abundance, getting land in Russia is not easy. A lot of it has to do with the history of land use in the Soviet Union. Land was nationalized after the 1917 revolution and private land ownership became virtually non-existent. But it didn't mean that the government officials wouldn't give out lands to people who has money, to their friends, people who are in power could get lands they want and to do their almost anything they would like to do. But regular people were not included in this process. Corruption and nepotism continued in post-Soviet Russia at a much larger scale. After the collapse, the government formally allowed private land ownership, but the system only works for people with money and power. Вот мы и переехали. Краешек земли. These changes have been very painful for Roma. When he was a kid, his parents would take him to a fishing lodge on the shore of Lake Tunaycha. It was affordable and open to anyone. You just needed to buy a vacation package from your employer. Roma remembers those times fondly running around the forest with other kids, going fishing with his dad, adults playing the guitar and singing till late at night. These times inspired his lifelong interest in ecology and environmental activism. Tunacha Lake and its surroundings are protected areas. However, in the 1990s, a powerful entrepreneur illegally privatized the fishing lodge and turned it into a VIP recreation facility. Unfortunately, it's a typical story of post-Soviet land grabs. The Far Eastern Hector is supposed to make land distribution more democratic by providing equal access to land for all Russian citizens. To eliminate corruption, Moscow has people apply for land online. But the final approval still depends on local officials. First, it was hard to move them because they still believed that this kind of a, just a fake program and this leads to the same old issues, corruption and nepotism. Roma recognizes these difficulties, but he sees signs of change and is optimistic overall. Many officials were fired because they didn't want to cooperate. In some districts, whole departments were fired. Because they didn't give out lands? Yeah, in, in the Korsakov. For example, there is a group of little clerics who were very slow to deliver lands and they were procrastinating. They were trying to keep all these lands and do not deliver them to people in the case that some powerful people with money will come to them and just probably they planned to give the best lands to their friends or like some people who, who would be beneficial for them. But Roma says... 
enough people complained and... They started to understand that Russian government supports this program and everybody who stays on the way will be moved. And they started to cooperate and started to even help people who applied for the land. Roma deeply grieved the loss of his favorite vacation spot due to privatization or the illegal land grabs of the 90s. So he hurried to protect the Silent Bay from greedy tourist developers or future upper-class vacationers. All of a sudden, the Silent Bay was in danger. Nobody reserved these lands for future natural parks or even recreational areas. Everybody, almost everybody could apply for these lands and get it in their own purpose. I could not stay and watch how Sahel Island will lost this natural pearl, how we call it. Mm-hmm. So basically, <laughs> basically what you're trying to do, you're trying to get the land so that you can protect it from other participants of the Forest and Hector program. Exactly. <laughs> we use this program to protect these lands from this program. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. My conversations with Roma revealed a strange paradox. There is a lot of land in Russia, but it's either unavailable or unwanted. And another thing, no matter what the government does, its efforts always go the wrong way. They took away our lands. They're giving away our land. Anyways, here I was, helping Roma protect the Silent Bay from our greedy and unfair compatriots, in the company of a dozen or so other fellow travelers. When Roma started developing the park, a local entrepreneur donated a piece of land nearby, right on the seashore. The businessman used the land for his fishing enterprise. But once the fish were gone, so did the profit. So he gave it to Roma for a good cause. Now Roma is turning an abandoned fishing village into a volunteer base camp. Living at the volunteer house is a lot of fun. People flock from all over the country to clean the beach, chop wood and rebuild the old fishing camp. We also hike, gaze at the stars, soak in the banya, indulge in festive dinners, play the guitar, and talk for hours on end. Interestingly, the atmosphere in the house resembles a Soviet tourist lodge, perhaps something like the fishing lodge from Roma's childhood. Primitive facilities and simple manual labor level people out. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do in the outside world. What matters is your contribution to the camp's collective life. Roma initially imagined the park as pristine and wild. His mission was to protect Sahalin's untouched landscape. However, this changed as he got to know the land better. Japanese started a mining, fishing and tourist boom. The Soviets extensively logged the land. 
Huge forest fires scorched the area in the 1960s. These signs of human activity are grafted on the land's body. You just need to train your eyes to recognize them. One day, as Roma scouted the area, he noticed several pits on the ground. They were barely visible, no more than half a meter deep. Roma says that he didn't know much about the island's pre-Japanese history, so he turned to his friends archaeologists. They all agreed that these could only be the traces of an old Ainu settlement. Ainu are the indigenous people of Sakhalin, Hokkaido and Kuril Islands. Towards the end of my stay, Roma took me and Svetlana, a paleopedologist from Irkutsk, on a little tour where he showed us the pits he had talked about. Covered in thick, dry grass, these pits remain invisible to most travelers. But Roma is no stranger to this land. He took us to the spot, and they quickly revealed themselves. See this steep rise right here? It's a trapezoid. This is where it narrows down. It's so quiet here. And the view, guys, check out the view. After we examined the pits, Roma jumped on the mountain slope and started digging dirt with his bare hands, looking for possible artifacts. Look, look, I found one! He stood on his knees and excitedly waved a small object at us. We got closer and Roma handed me his find. It was an unassuming piece of pottery covered in dirt and soot, about the size of a quarter. Roma and Svetlana quickly determined that it was proto-Ainu, more than 2,000 years old. It was very thin, while Ainu pottery is supposed to be thicker. Honestly, I couldn't believe what just happened. All it took to find an archaeological site was basic knowledge of Ainu lifestyle and some common sense. Believe it or not, but Roma, even though he's a Sahalin native, never heard of the Ainu before. But this discovery started his obsession with their history and culture. He reads anything he can get his hands on about the Ainu. And he's most impressed with the Ainu treatment of nature and their ability to live sustainably off the land. He 
Historically, the Ainu practiced hunting, plant gathering, and fishing, and settled along seashores and rivers, particularly those used by salmon to go upstream. It's really impressive how uh, they were treating nature. Before take from the forest tree or take life of animal, they were asking permissions to get it. The Ainu believed that everything in nature has a spirit. They called it Kamui. When they were making boat from the tree, they were asking, can they take this particular tree? And they were staying overnight near this tree with a fire, and they were constantly asking this tree, is it okay to take you? They offered to this tree to be a nice boat and to be useful and to see different lands, go to the ocean. If they had a nightmare that night, it meant that the tree's kamui didn't give permission. But if everything okay and they have good dream and kamui didn't tell them anything bad, it means that this tree told them yes, that this tree wants to be a boat. It's definitely a sustainable thing for nature because it taught people to think before take something from nature. Do they really need this? Do they really need to take it? Roma also appreciates the Aino for keeping their settlements small because they left a light footprint on Sahalin's environment. They like to settle near the mouths of the rivers, but by only one family. Sometimes two families. That's why there was no pressure on nature. Only one family on one river. Or family with kids and grandkids. And that's how they could deliver to future generations all these natural resources. They didn't kill all the trees around. They didn't catch all the fish around. Didn't kill all the animals. I appreciated Roma's enthusiasm about the Ainu environmental ethic, especially since most people in Sahalin don't know or even care about the Ainu. But the anthropologist in me couldn't ignore Roma's romanticism of the Ainu culture. His remarks, the Ainu did this, the Ainu did that, often fed into cliches about the noble savage. His celebration of simple life in harmony with nature didn't differ much from the exoticism colonists and settlers expressed worldwide. On one of the rides we took together, Roma lamented the fact that the Ainu abandoned their thousand-year-old traditions because they were tempted by the Japanese lifestyle. They were seduced by the propaganda of civilization and lost their individuality. Они поддались на эту, так сказать, 
пропаганды цивилизации, да? И они потеряли свою индивидуальность, они приобрели пороки японцы, и они, они исчезли. They lost their lands and their spirits, their kamui, took offense and abandoned them. Что с ними произошло? Они все, они потеряли себя, потеряли землю свою, потеряли все, и они ушли. Возможно, что я вообще даже думаю, что их kamui на них прогневались, просто обиделись. In my head, I would scream. Roma, this is so wrong. Don't say this. Just stop right now. Что Айны перестали быть хранителями земли, хранителями коммуев, хранителями традиций. И все. Я реально в это верю. But Roma didn't see any issues with his statement and kept going, saying the Ainu could have saved themselves by moving further into the island and away from the corrupting influence of the colonizers. Как можно было бы по-другому? А по-другому можно было бы. У Айны была классная стратегия, которая могла позволить им выжить. У них вся культура была мобильная. Вот разорилось, сгорело их жилище, сломалось, или рыба не пришла в речку. Они могли сняться в любой момент. Погрузить все в лодку, они жили вдоль моря. Уйти в другое место, далеко где их никто не найдет. один сезон построили себе часы соломенная амбар и еще землянку выкопать и пережить зиму вполне есть вот сказки которые описывают это все Maybe this is a lifestyle Roma dreams of for himself, in the wilderness, away from people. A few years ago, Roma spent two months living in a tent in the Silent Bay and building an Aino storage house. The project was both about paying tribute to an old Aino settlement, learning their building techniques and adopting their lifestyle for a couple of months. He started by studying photos and pictures drawn by first explorers. He also studied contemporary Aino architecture from Hokkaido and noted the differences between Hokkaido and Sahalin approaches. He paid particular attention to the technique, what materials were used, how beams and posts were connected, and how the location was chosen. It took two weeks to make basement and frame, and then two weeks to cover it with reed, this grass it's called reed. After harvesting reed, it had to be tied into bunches of equal size. For the storage house, they had to prepare 144 bunches. Oh how did you how did you transport them up the hill? Like uh, on our backs. Did you use backpacks? No, no like, it's just like oh, did you carry uh, seven bunches in one bunch, mm -hmm. tied it with a rope and hold it on the back, and then you go in up the little creek in the mm -hmm. rubber boots and carrying it on your back. Me and some volunteers, guys who are joining me. In one day we were collecting about 14 bunches uh -huh. and seven on each guy. We were driving this with a car up to the creek and then from the creek we were walking to one peninsula and then went down to the little bay and then we're climbing up to another cape. Wow. 
Oh my god, it must have taken you at least two weeks to just prepare the yeah. read. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. And, You're a uh, crazy person. <laughs> we, were, we were following Ainu traditional ways of building. It was agenda to follow them, to live their life. We were exhausted quite often. We were tired. We understood our limits, our power and strength limits, and time limits because day is very short in November. And uh, we could not build too big or too complicated. We have to think every day how to make it simpler. With smaller beams, we used only axe. And uh, to join all the parts, we used only ropes. Same like Aina did. And uh, that's why we were able to make complete and accurate reconstruction of the Aino food storage. We recorded this interview in November. It was pretty cold already. I would be miserable living in a tent for two months under such weather. But Roma made it seem like a fun, exciting adventure. And you lived in a tent the whole way, right? Yeah. In November. Yeah. But we had... Uh, That's insane. <laughs> but we had another tent. We call it a uh, mobile sauna. Mm. And uh, it's a tent with stove inside and stones on the top of the stove. Every evening after hard work, in the darkness, we made sauna session. <laughs> That's like an Aino-Russian fusion now. Yeah, and uh, we uh, were going out with no clothes to the snow, sitting under the stars, thinking about this project and how Aino would build it and what they would do in the evening. And then we went to our tent, to our sleeping bags, warmed and clean, <laughs> and it helped a lot to strive through this <laughs> harsh <laughs> experience. Enthusiast that he is, Roma was excited to meet the Ainu who still live on Sahalin and, of course, show off his new storage house. Here's where Irina enters our story. She met the curly haired, blue eyed Roma a couple of winters ago when a friend introduced them. It was Arena's come to Jesus moment. During the winter, I wanted to have contact of any of Aino offsprings to invite them to participate in our project, show them Aino food storage we built it. I was looking for some project we would make together, and uh, because we built the first Aino structure for the past 73 years after Ainu were moved to Japan. Of course, I was proud of our project and wanted to show the Ainu offsprings what we did. And that's how I got her contact. We became friends on WhatsApp and I showed her all the pictures, invited her in summer into our park. She came and visited. She fell in love with everything we do there. And uh, that's how we started to cooperate 
Irina is a short, flamboyant, chatty woman in her mid-40s. She dresses up, not for style, but to project authority. She reveres Roma just as much as he reveres her. But it took time for Irina to warm up to him. Часто встречаются третьи лица, которые пытаются использовать исконных жителей в своих целях каких-то. Ирина says that she often meets folks who use indigenous people for their own interests. Вот, но тут я отмечаю, что идет напротив такой синергетический эффект. Ведь у нас конечной целью является построить этническую деревню Айнов. But with Roma, things are different. They have a common goal. Building an Aino village. Роман Шатров, координатор. Мы с ним очень тесно работаем, сотрудничаем. Я хочу сказать, что это очень удивительный и уникальный человек. Я его не просто уважаю, я просто восхищаюсь этим человеком, тем, насколько он уникален и насколько он необычен. Человек живет этим проектом. Человек смотрит на мир глазами древних Айнов. Человек любит этот проект, любит природу. She sees Roma as extraordinary and unique. This project is his life. He sees the world through the eyes of the ancient Aino. Roma and Irina address each other using Aino honorifics, or titles expressing respect. So Irina became Irina Maruf, while Roma turned into Romanese Polkai. They also exchange various formulaic phrases in Ainu, hello, thank you, goodbye, to signal their special bond. I found this relationship both endearing and troublesome. I saw them both projecting stereotypes onto each other. Irina became a token Ainu. Whatever she said or did had to relate to her Ainu heritage. Roma, in his turn, was a noble savior of Ainu culture and tradition. Irina placed a lot of hope and pressure on him to bring the project to fruition. One night at the camp epitomized these mutual stereotypes and expectations. It was the night the owl visited. We were all gathered in the volunteer house. We just had dinner, and as usual, folks hang out, bantering. Roma harvested fresh seaweed from the beach and hurriedly ran around the kitchen crafting his perfect seaweed salad. Several people idly watched him. 
One of the volunteers, Olga, asked whether he put onions in his version or not. Then another camp goer, Valentina, came back to the house and quietly said, There is an owl outside. Pandemonium. Everyone rushed outside. The owl sat on the electricity pole next to the house. We could barely make out its shape in the dark. Stand back! Roma commanded. Only Irina was allowed to approach the bird. Irina solemnly steps towards the pole, standing in silence, her hands raised, as 20 people watch her in the freezing cold. Owls occupy a special place in the Ainu pantheon. They're divine beings that warn people of danger or send them good news. Roma clearly connected the owl's appearance with Irina's visit to the volunteer camp. It couldn't be a coincidence. It was fate. Like everyone else, I was annoyed that we had to stay back and let Irina commune with the owl. However, I appreciated Roma's attempt to create a space for Irina to freely practice her spiritual beliefs. Roma says his interest in the Ainu culture and his efforts to revitalize their traditions has had a huge impact on Irina. For many years she was ashamed of being Ainu. Now she's proud of being part of a great nation. I couldn't tell who was more excited, Roma or Irina. Everyone else went back to the house, cold and bored. 
but not Roma and Irina. They took pictures of the owl and of each other with the owl in the background. They pointed out owl's features and movements to each other. After the owl flew onto the roof of a rundown building a few meters away, Roma whispered excitedly, He's telling me to rebuild this house. I think he's giving me his blessing. I didn't know what to think. On the one hand, the whole scene looked outrageously silly. Irina communicating with her ancestral deity, Roma interpreting its signs, and the rest of us, the uninitiated, staying behind, spectators of this mysterious performance. On the other hand, their excitement revealed a genuine desire to connect with the Ainu Kamui, to reawaken the world of Ainu spirituality. And the only way to do it is through practice. Irina wasn't always connected to her Ainu beliefs, until she had what for the lack of a better word was a conversion experience, also involving an owl. She was a typical rebellious teenager. She often fought with her parents. And one night she decided to leave home. She called a couple of friends, but no one would let her stay the night, so she decided to sleep in the basement of her parents' apartment building. In the middle of the night, she felt something hit her. At first, she thought it was a cat, but then she recognized it. It was an owl. Как оно там оказалось? Я говорю, вы знаете, все, говорю, мне нужно уйти. Оно молчит никак. Я чувствую, агрессии от него нет. Но оно что-то выгоняет меня, как будто. Агрессии нет. Я такая ноги в руки и все и домой. Я пошла, мама, что я? А мамка смеяться, тебя кому и домой пригнали? Не будешь дурью мается. She felt that something forced her to leave. When she came home, her mom laughed and said that Kamui sent her home. Дурью мається. Кому я 
Наслали а, фильм. Да, да, да. да. А кто знает, что бы там осталось? Рома instantly reaffirmed her mother's words. It was Kamui who sent her home. I don't know who else heard this story, and I don't know what you'd make of it. But what I do know is that Roma's enthusiasm for Aino culture created a space for Irina to freely share her memories without any judgment. Irina hid her Aino heritage for many years. She was ashamed. Ashamed of her appearance. Ashamed of racial slurs at school. Ashamed of going to the store with her mom. She blamed her for being different. Unfortunately, it is a typical story of an indigenous person growing up in a predominantly white, prejudiced, and ignorant society. А кто знает, чтобы там осталось, я мало ли что могу Ну, конечно. Это я сейчас, уже будучи взрослым человеком, понимаю. А тогда я же И вот у меня после этого я страх, я боюсь находиться одна в темных помещениях. Вот я боюсь. Смотрите, какая я бесстрашная была, одна в подвал пошла ночевать. Сейчас я боюсь даже в квартире одна находиться ночью. Ирина didn't make much of her encounter with the owl at the time. Later, she came to see this moment as key for her spiritual awakening. Irina tells me that as a kid growing up in the Soviet Union, she read a lot about science. Journals like Science and Life would debunk superstitions using scientific evidence. So, поэтому я никогда вот это, ну, ни во что это не верила. Темноты я не боялась. Это у меня потом появилось все. Вот после встречи с этим существом еще у меня в жизни были такие истории. После чего я стала во все это верить. Не просто верить, я знаю, что это все есть. Все время мне кто-то или что-то вот это тот мир, да, который мы не видим так называемый духовный мир, мне подавали знаки о том, что этот мир есть. И я перестала как бы так относиться к этому скептически. Более того, я боюсь, как бы. But despite her secular science-driven upbringing, the world of spirits gradually revealed itself to her and drew her in. Если все это есть, не факт, что мы это не видим каждый день, оно есть, и оно в некоторых случаях просто наблюдает за нами. Вот. И это оно, что-то оно сильное, намного сильнее, чем мы думаем. Потому что мы живем какой-то промежуток времени, а оно жило, живет и будет жить после нас. Вот это. She tells me that we might not be able to see spirits, but they are out there watching us, and they are much more powerful than we think. Irina faced new problems after embracing her Aino heritage, including her right to be called Aino. One day I witnessed a conversation between her and a local videographer. The woman questioned whether Irina was really Aino, since only her grandma was a full-blood Aino. I was outraged and intervened. 
explain that their identity is fluid and people are free to choose who they identify with, etc, etc. I don't think that people at the table cared. But later, Irina told me she appreciated me standing up to that woman. Unfortunately, conversations about blood percentages, language skills, and traditional dress abounded. Roma understands that Irina's life radically changed in the past few years. She began healing her childhood traumas, taking pride in the history of her family and the larger Aino community. Roma is happy to help by providing a safe and nurturing environment in the Silent Bay. He also sees his wider mission in redressing the historical injustice. The Ainu, the original inhabitants of this region, were forcibly removed from the land. It's not in Roma's power to bring them back, but at the very least, he can help Irina reconnect with her roots, with the land and its spirits. It's really sad when people losing their roots and forgetting history. It's not fair for all that generations who are living on the Sakhalin Island and uh, were protecting this island. I mean, I know people. transformation of my own at the volunteer camp. I started off as an outsider, a researcher who frowned upon Rama's relationship to the Aino community. Everything he said seemed to rub me the wrong way. As I got to know Roma and Arena and their relationship, I realized that my observations were only partially true. Their bond was much more complicated than I originally thought. Irina's discovery of her Aino heritage is a gradual process. And so is Roma's and other volunteers' awareness of what it means to be an indigenous person in today's Russia. Sure, by American standards, they seem ignorant, even rude at times. They ask very uncomfortable questions, they jump to unfounded assumptions, their judgment is clouded by the tendency to exoticize the Aino. As Irina and her allies continue their advocacy, they will cultivate a more nuanced understanding of the Aino history and culture in their Russian neighbors. Or maybe not. Maybe being indigenous in Russia will always be associated with shamanic rituals and traditional dances. But one thing became clear to me. Roma offered Irina a space where she could explore, negotiate and express her identity. It's not perfect, but it's a good place to start. Ainu Fever was
was written, produced, and edited by Rosanna Novikova. Sean Guillory did additional editing. Thanks to Raman Shatrov and Irina Grudova for participating. For the full list of music and sources used in this episode, go to euronaut.org. All right. Well, that was uh, I Knew Fever. I, I hope you enjoyed it. And um, as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rosanna Novikov. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners just like you, if you liked I Knew Fever, this is the kind of stuff we want to start doing. Like, you know, more interesting stories, more creative things. So if you like this type of stuff, please consider becoming a patron, become a monthly patron to this podcast so we can have more resources to do this type of thing. Um, so please go to patreon.com slash uranaut and become a monthly patron or to uranaut.org uh, and sign up to the Patreon. And if you also, if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media. Tell all your friends about it, particularly this episode, I Knew Fever, so more people can listen to it uh, and be exposed to this. So yeah. So until uh, next time. Bye. Bye.